1: Welcome back to Truth and Justice. Over the last four weeks, we have been breaking down our TV series, The Forgotten West Memphis 3, part by part. I'm going to begin today with a short recap of how far we've come up to this point. This has been an incredibly difficult and emotional journey, and there's still work that needs to be done.
0: There's nothing like Ireland's wild Atlantic Way. 1,600 miles of soaring cliffs, dreamy remote islands and buzzing little towns. Not to mention the seafood.
1: Oh, the seafood. And if you drive with Irish ferries, you'll arrive relaxed and ready to explore. Bring the whole gang, pets and all. Fill the boot with goodies
0: and get a warm Irish welcome before you even get to Ireland. Hop across from Hollyhead to Dublin. Book early at irishferries.com and see travel differently. Terms and conditions
1: apply. In part one of the series, I met with Pam Hicks and Ryan Clark, who provided my motivation to work towards finally solving the notorious West Memphis 3 case. These family members of the victims are still hurting and still don't feel that justice has been served for the murders of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Pam touched all of our hearts with her plea for the world to not forget about her son. I moved on from Pam to begin the process of truly understanding the crime scene. I met with renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Rebecca Hsu, herpetologist Dr. Lori Newman-Lee, and retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi. Our trio of experts, along with the knowledge gained by my own experience, led us to the conclusion that all three boys were drowned. These murders had nothing to do with any type of ritual sacrifice. And all of the visible injuries on the boys, with the exception of a few head injuries, occurred after death and were the result of turtles feeding on the boys' bodies. In part two, I worked on narrowing down a timeline of the boys' afternoon and evening and took a deep dive into their victimology. I met with Jim Clementi again and we completed a crime scene reconstruction and began working towards building a profile. It was also in part two when I met with Susanna Ryan of Pure Gold Forensics and she explained to us how she believes she could use new technology called MVAC to extract the killer's DNA from the crime scene. From there, I reached out to Jason Baldwin to get his permission to test the evidence and began my search for Jesse Kelly to do the same. This was also the time when I first reached out to the district attorney, Scott Ellington, for guidance on the necessary procedures to get the evidence tested. In part three, I secured permission from Damien Eccles and Jesse Kelly to move forward with the testing of the evidence, and my frustrations with Ellington started to become apparent. By this point in the process, I had called and emailed him on multiple occasions. My production team had made multiple attempts to get a hold of him, and we even had attorneys attached to the case reaching out. This went on for months, and Ellington refused to even return a phone call. While that was going on in the background, I continued to move forward with my investigation by hiring world-renowned false confession expert Jim Trainum to analyze the Jesse Miss Kelly confession. Before moving any further with new theories, I wanted to see if we could for sure, once and for all, exclude the convicted West Memphis Three from the suspect pool. Based on Jim's analysis, along with the years of investigation by many parties, the West Memphis Three were finally ruled out during part three. Also in this episode, we were able to rule out the Bojangles theory, and I brought Jim Clemente back to deliver his profile of the killer. Jim laid out a very detailed profile of the type of person that we should be looking for. A man in his 30s, with a known authoritative relationship with at least one of the boys. A man who is an extreme disciplinarian with a violent past. According to Jim, our killer would have been from the same neighborhood as the boys. He would be impulsive quick to anger, but also quick to recover. He would also have some experience as a big game hunter or even a butcher. Moving on from Jim's profile, we then use that information, as well as the evidence that's been collected over the years, to evaluate the remaining suspects, which is where we begin with Part 4, Persons of Interest. Part 4 opens up with me discussing DNA testing from 2007 that brought two new suspects into the pool. A hair found tied up in the ligature of Michael Moore was tested for mitochondrial DNA, and all of the West Memphis Three were excluded as possible contributors. But Stevie Branch's stepfather, Terry Hobbs, could not be excluded. There was also another hair found by a lab tech on a tree stump six weeks after the murder. The hair wasn't in the immediate proximity of the crime scene, but it was in the woods near it. Terry's friend, David Jacoby, couldn't be excluded as the contributor of that hair. After the hairs were tested, Terry Hobbs was finally brought into the West Memphis Police Department for questioning, 14 years after the initial investigation. His questioning by no means was an interrogation. It was more like a formality something that needed to be done to at least give the appearance that Hobbs was being considered as a suspect. But really, the only thing that was accomplished by that interview was it gave the West Memphis PD a means to clear Terry as a suspect and double down on their assertion that the West Memphis Three are guilty. But four years later, the West Memphis Three were finally released from prison on an Alford plea. And as far as the state was concerned, the case was closed. In the next scene, I returned to Pure Gold Forensics to speak with Susanna Ryan again. A lot of people had given their amateur analysis of the 2007 DNA results on the internet over the years, but I wanted to hear directly from an actual expert before I moved on to further investigate Jacobian Hobbes. Susanna first explains the difference between mitochondrial and nuclear DNA. Since there were no root balls on either of the hairs found, mitochondrial was the only type that was able to be extracted. So in layman's terms, mitochondrial DNA is passed down from your mother, but unlike nuclear DNA, it's passed down completely unchanged from generation to generation, which means that if you go all the way back to, say, your great-great-grandmother, your mitochondrial DNA profile would be the same as hers, and pretty much every other blood relative on her side of the family. It's because of this that we can't get definitive results when using this type of testing. The statistics show that one out of every 949 people would have the exact same profile as the hair found in Michael Moore's binding. Now, West Memphis had a population of around 30,000 people at the time. So statistically, about 30 people in town would share that same profile. Terry Hobbs is one of them. The hair that was found on the tree stump didn't contain as complete of a profile. Because there were less markers present, that profile could only be narrowed down to one in 400 people. So roughly 75 people living in West Memphis at that time could not be eliminated as contributors of that hair, and David Jacoby was one of those 75. There are several other contributing factors that keep landing Terry Hobbs in the pool of persons of interest. But other than this hair, there's nothing that indicates that David Jacoby had anything to do with these murders. So because of that, I asked Susanna Ryan if she believed the tree stump hair was a significant item of evidence that should further point me in the direction of Jacoby. Her first question to me was, is there any logical reason for David's hair to be in those woods if it was in fact his? And the answer, of course, is yes. David was actually in those woods on the night of May 5th with Terry, Pam Hicks, and Pam's father Jackie searching for the boys. Then, secondly, Susanna points out that there is no definitive evidence that suggests the tree stump hair actually had any connection to the crime scene whatsoever. It wasn't found by law enforcement, it wasn't found at the actual crime scene, and when it was discovered, six weeks had passed since the boys' bodies had been discovered. And the discovery location was in a public patch of woods her conclusion was that without any other corroborating evidence of involvement she would not consider david jacoby as a suspect based on that hair but the hair consistent with hobbs that is a different story the hair that terry cannot be excluded from was found wrapped up inside of the bindings While there are potential explanations outside of involvement that could possibly explain the hair away, in all likelihood, that hair was connected to the crime itself. Susanna's recommendation was to continue to investigate Terry Hobbs as a person of interest. In the next scene, I travel to sit down with David Jacoby. Unfortunately, you didn't get to see a lot of my interview with David in the TV series. There were a few reasons for that, but the number one reason had to do with David's nervousness. So let me back up a couple of years and share with you the evolution of my relationship with David Jacoby. One of the reasons that David has been looked at as a suspect in this case over the years, besides the tree stump hair, is because Terry Hobbs used him as his alibi after the binding hair DNA results became public. When finally questioned about the evening that the boys were killed, Hobbs told investigators, including FBI profiler John Douglas, that he was with Jacoby throughout the entire evening. But David refutes that claim. According to him, he and Terry were together from around 5 p.m. until just after 6. At that point, Terry had dropped him back off at home and didn't return until after 8 p.m. It's because of this conflict that I began my search for David Jacoby in 2017. Mike and I ended up tracking him down that fall, but when we pulled up to his house, he wasn't home. I spoke with David's mom, Norma, for a little while and left my card for David. He never called back. A few months later, I returned again. Another nice chat with Norma and still no David. His mom told me that the public attention to this case had all but ruined David's life. After the 2007 DNA results in the West Memphis 3 defense team press conference, David was harassed everywhere he went. People at the grocery store screamed at him that he was a child killer, people broke out the windows in his truck, and parents pulled their children out of the little league teams that he was coaching. Eventually, David had to shut down his business and move out of West Memphis. He now works in a place where his employer has no use for the internet ...and only knows David for the man that he sees in front of him. A hard-working, kind-hearted, father of seven. Norma explained to me that her son just really didn't want to talk about the case anymore. He had done everything he could to help the investigators and the West of Memphis production team. And for his efforts, David was made out to be a possible child killer to millions of people. Needless to say he finds it very difficult to trust anyone at this point. It was seeming like I was never going to get to sit face-to-face with the man that I felt might hold the key to solving this case. But then, as luck would have it, I began chatting with a group of women who have been studying the case for years, and they knew David Jacoby personally. Eventually, they made an introduction, and within days, I was back in my truck driving to Arkansas to meet David face-to-face. That first meeting consisted of me, David, Norma, and about three pots of coffee. No cameras, no microphones, just a conversation. During that meeting, I had earned the trust of David. And a few months later, he finally agreed to an official interview. At this point, we were already doing some filming for the TV series, but from what I had learned from our previous meeting, I knew that David would not be comfortable with me rolling into his house with a camera crew and audio and lighting techs. So I packed up my Sony Handycam, a tripod, and a couple of lapel mics, and I hit the road again. After nearly a year of working to build a relationship with David, a man that I'm now proud to call a friend, I finally turned the camera on and recorded the only long form, two-hour-long detailed interview with the man that you will likely ever see. David had been comfortable enough with me to finally open up and we walked through every detail of that horrific night. There were a lot of tears, and a lot of old wounds opened up, but he fought through the pain because, as he told me, David believes that I may just be the one to finally solve this case. Find justice for Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm not going to get into all of the nitty gritty details that were covered in my first 2018 interview with David because I'm going to be airing that interview in its entirety over the next two weeks. But I told you all of that to tell you this. David Jacoby is a tired and nervous man. He's been through more than most of us could ever imagine because of this case and he has a really hard time trusting anyone. When I showed the production team the interview that I had recorded, it didn't fit with the look of the rest of the show, meaning I was using a shitty camera and the lighting was terrible, etc., etc. So they wanted to shoot a new interview. Reluctantly, David agreed to do so. But the made-for-TV interview that we conducted last year didn't even resemble the interview that I recorded the year before. We had a crew of 14 people working on the set. Two cameras, a lot of lights, and a lot of folks scurrying around the house. David was so nervous that he kept clutching at his chest, which happened to be where his microphone was located. If you notice when you watch the series, David is the only person that's ever on camera where you can see the microphone. Our audio tech, Mario, always does a great job of concealing it. But eventually, he had to give up with David and just clip it to the outside of his shirt. But because of those audio issues, it's why we had to use subtitles during the show. It was just really hard to hear him most of the time. Throughout most of the interview, he was nearly inaudible through the microphone. So what you ended up seeing was David doing his best to recall the timeline of when he was with Terry Hobbs that night. What he landed on was that Terry showed up at about 5 p.m. to ask if David had seen Stevie. He hadn't, and he invited Terry in to have him help David learn a particular part of a song on his guitar. According to David, they played together for about 30 minutes or so, and then Terry said that he really should go look for Stevie. And David volunteered to go with him, and they drove around the neighborhood looking for about 10 minutes. At that point, Terry dropped David off and went home to see if Stevie had returned. A few minutes later, Terry showed up again, and the two took off on another drive. David estimates that this trip took about 15 minutes, and then Terry dropped him off once again. So at this point, it was sometime between 6 and 6.30, probably closer to 6.30. An hour and a half to two hours then passes before Terry shows up a third time. David thinks that his wife, Bobby, was watching Terry's four-year-old daughter, Amanda, during that stretch, but he says that he just can't be sure. He knows that Bobby did watch Amanda for him at some point during the evening, but he's not sure exactly when. And Bobby can't remember either, unfortunately. According to David, at around 8 p.m., the two took off again to search for Stevie. But this time, they ended up at the Robin Hood Woods. David noticed some bike tracks in a trail and followed them. He was accompanied by a group of teenagers who I believe were some of Ryan Clark's friends. They followed the tracks all the way through the woods to the pipe bridge. The tracks stopped short of the pipe, like the bikes had been laid down in the bushes on the neighborhood side. And that's where David noticed... A single set of muddy footprints on the pipe. There was a lot more to this interview, but you're going to get to see all of those details next week, I promise. But there was one moment that didn't make the final cut that I wish had. You saw on the show that through tears, David exclaimed, I hope you find them, the person who did this. Somebody's got to. But what you didn't see was moments before that, when I was trying to reassure David that it was okay for him not to remember every detail as he was struggling to draw on his memory of that night. David, in a burst of emotion, responded, It's not okay with me. I should be able to help. Because of David's nervousness, a few people on Facebook have asked me what his body language is saying people suggested that I have Jim Clemente analyze David's statement. I felt that I had a pretty good read on David. I mean, after all, Jim's the one who trained me. But as always, when in doubt, I bring in an expert. So last week, I sent Jim Clemente the uncut video interview that I recorded with David two years ago and asked him to give me his opinion on Jacoby's body language and the interview in general. This is what Jim had to say after watching. All right, Jim. After people watched the the program, we saw very little of David Jacoby, uh, and and there was a lot of reasons for that. Kind of behind the scenes stuff is, you know, it, David was super nervous. All the lights and the the microphones and the crew running around had him had him really on edge. He's really an introvert and was just really uncomfortable, and he was real fidgety. And he kept grabbing his uh, his lapel mic too, which gave us some sound issues. But because of his nervousness. I've had a few people online say, you know, they don't, you know, his body language, they'd, they'd like to know what Jim Clemente thinks about his body language. You only saw those few minutes, but as I've mentioned before, prior to this, I recorded and videotaped a two-hour interview with David.
0: Right, and you sent me it, and I looked at it, and I'll tell you this, yes, he was nervous. And this is the most important thing for you listeners to understand. There are no... Universal indicators of deception. You have to norm each individual and look for changes in behavior. And those changes in behavior can indicate deception. So I looked at the kinds of behaviors that he exhibited throughout. And you see him touching his ear or fixing his hair behind his ear. And, you know, in one segment or, in a, you know, a period of time, I counted that 11 times he did that. But then you'll see that he touched his face 54 times in that same segment. He looked down at least 31 times, and he cleared his throat twice. He sniffed about five times. Those are all nervous behaviors. He was doing it a lot. It wasn't when he was answering specific questions or when he was, you know, confronted about things or asked about a specific thing. This is his norm these kinds of behaviors. It's not something that stood out. He did clear his throat twice, he sniffed it five times, but those would be indicators of a change, perhaps. But what I saw in his behavior almost throughout was that he used his hands to demonstrate. And when people actually use their hands to demonstrate or their bodies to demonstrate what was happening, That is something that typically indicates a recalled event. In other words, people don't necessarily use their hands to demonstrate when they're making up an event. They don't turn with their head and look in the direction they said that they were looking at the time. They look at the person they're talking to and they try to make eye contact because they're trying to convince somebody. And instead of trying to convince you of details, Listen to the words that he says. I'm not sure. It's kind of foggy. I wish I could. He's not trying to convince you of something. What he's trying to do is answer honestly. To me, when he got really emotional, when he started crying, it was a very unique situation. It was a situation where the mother of a missing child approached him. That is what got him emotional. You didn't see crocodile tears when he said, you know, and yeah, I saw this kid grew up and, you know, and just think of what happened to him and, and start crying there. He literally burst into tears when he was talking to you, when he talked about Pam coming to his house. And to me, that was a very genuine reaction. And it wasn't a reaction that was sparked by some kind of a direct question by you in order to deflect your intensity or something like that, it seemed like a very unexpected on your part and unexpected on his part reaction to remembering an actual remembered event of Pam coming to him. So again, there were a number of indicators to me that he actually did experience the things he was talking to you about and that he would constantly use his head, hands and body to indicate that he was actually reliving experienced events.
1: Now, there's there was one part in the, that interview that, again, my audience is going to hear next week, but you've already heard it. I want I want to talk to you about it real quick because last week when you were on the show, you mentioned in your profile that our unsub very likely would have tried to get someone to help him discover the body. And you heard David Jacoby tell a story about when they went across the pipe. It was him, Terry, Pam, and Pam's father. And Terry kept urging him to go with him in the direction where the boys' bodies were ultimately found. What did you make of that?
0: Well, that was very strange behavior, again, on Terry's part. It was strange that he, one, acted as if he was scared. And I think David Jacoby was, was kind of shocked at that. I mean, in, in such a way that he was like, uh, what are you, a little baby? You know, that kind of thing. He didn't understand the behavior. It was his indicator that this was an anomaly. This was anomalous type behavior on the part of Terry Opp. So that was in real time when it, when it happened. So, again, these are all things that need to be drilled down on, that need to basically be confirmed or refuted. And the only person that can do that is Terry Hobbs. He should be brought in front of law enforcement officers who are very well trained in interview and interrogation techniques, who know how not to lead somebody and know how to get accurate and reliable information from them. I will say this. Something that we didn't talk about was the interview that, that, they, that the law enforcement officers did of Terry Hobbs. I believe after the DNA came back, and the officer asked him a very simple, open-ended question that is very typical, and we train law enforcement officers to do this at the end of an interview, an investigative interview. And he said, is there anything that has happened in the time since we last talked that has come up, even if it's insignificant, that you want to talk about? And he said a very strange thing. Well, I don't know what you're investigating, so I don't know how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Wait a minute. You don't know that he's investigating the murder of your son? What? You don't know that? How is that not thing on the forefront of your brain? Of course you know that. But it seemed very deceptive for him to answer in that way. So that's one thing that stood out. Another thing I wanted to mention is that when David Jacoby was talking to you, I don't know if you caught it, But at one point he said, I never once went over here, right? Right. I never once went over here. And he took his hands and he indicated to one side of him, right? Mm -hmm. By saying that, he indicated that he, in the moment, when the events were going on, he was actually near that place or could see that place. He didn't say over there. He said, I never once went over here. Okay. So that's something that puts him in that place and time. Again, it seems more like a recalled event than something that he is now conjuring up in his brain. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That if he was just talking about it, completely disembodied, that he had just made up this, he would have just said, I never went over there. But here, he looked in that direction motioned with his hands about a particular location and said, I never once went over here. So that, to me, again, put him in that event that recalled memory, as opposed to George Taylor, who I think was recounting details that he may have heard on a very shallow level. He wasn't recounting them in this way, where he actually was indicating experiential indicators with his Body movement and his words,
1: yeah, and I noticed that in most of my interview with David is that you know he would he, he's he, if you notice he's not looking at me hardly at all during no. the entire interview right. he's always and it, what he's I looking down yeah and in my my interpretation of it is he was either looking down or he was like gazing kind of into space was that he was genuinely putting himself back in that place to try to remember
0: right exactly I well. I think that part of his looking down was a response to the camera and that the camera was something that was inducing him to exhibit all these nervous behaviors, but they were consistent throughout. I didn't see breaks in that really, except, you know, you should, you know, I would look at the times when he clears throat or sniff, because those are behaviors that happened only a few times versus 30, 40, 50 times, right? Right. So those are the kinds of things that I would look at. So look at the things that he was saying when that was happening. But you also have to understand that the guy did actually get very emotional. So the sniffles and the clearing of the throat could be as a result of that, as well as just his lack of experience being in front of a camera. I think that accounts for most of these nervous kinds of behaviors because this was a real anomaly for him.
1: Jim's analysis of David Jacoby was the same as mine. This is a man doing his very best to remember what happened that night. He's being truthful and his emotions are very, very real. There is absolutely no reason or justification in accusing this man of this horrendous crime or even considering him a suspect. All David Jacoby has ever tried to do is to help find the real killer and it cost him everything. in the second half of part four, I narrowed the field of persons of interest down to one man, Terry Hobbs. After speaking to David, we loop back to my conversation with Lynn Hicks, Stevie's aunt. Now, Jim Clemente's profile suggests that the man that we're looking for would be an extreme disciplinarian. So as you can imagine, it perked my ears up when Jolynn shared with me a story about one day when she found three-year-old Stevie hiding in a closet crying. he had had an accident in his pants, and he was afraid that Terry was going to spank him. Jolynn has shared several stories with me, both on and off camera, about the extreme discipline that Terry would inflict on Stevie. She even alleges that Terry was jealous of Stevie because he was taking Pam's attention away from him. In the next scene, I returned to meet with Jim for the last time in the series. By this point, I had narrowed down our suspect pool. The West Memphis Three had been ruled out, Mr. Bojangles was ruled out, David Jacoby was ruled out, and the other two fathers that in some ways did fit the profile, Todd Moore and Mark Byers, both had alibis. So that left us with only Terry Hobbs. I want to preface this by saying that the fact that terry is the last remaining person of interest without an alibi and who fits the profile does not mean that he is the killer i just want to make that clear i'm not accusing terry hobbs of committing this crime i'm simply saying that through the process of jim and i and our team of experts working to investigate this case he is the sole remaining person that's on our radar that cannot be eliminated with that being said Some things that Terry has said over the years most certainly got Jim's attention. You only get to see a few minutes of this, but Jim and I spent hours reviewing Terry Hobbs' deposition from where he attempted to sue Natalie Maines of the Dixie Chicks. This was the first opportunity that anyone has had to get a good look at how Terry reacts to questions when someone is actually applying pressure to him. In the show, we see Jim's ears perk up when Terry says that he had the police meet him at Catfish Island, Pam's work, to take the report rather than meeting back at their house. In Jim's words, this was a major red flag. Jim's assessment was that having the police meet him and Pam there was an indicator that Terry did not want the police at his house, which would make sense if Terry was actually involved in the murders. According to David Jacoby, there were muddy footprints on the pipe, meaning that the killer's shoes were likely covered in mud. And certainly, their pants would have been soaked if not also covered in mud. And if that person changed clothes and cleaned up before engaging in the search, there would be evidence back at their house that they had been on that ditch bank. Now, speaking of David Jacoby, I want to circle back to him for just a minute him and a couple other people that we heard from in the series. Throughout the course of filming, two different people told me that they had been contacted by Terry Hobbs. Both Pam Hicks and Chris Byers' brother, Ryan Clark, told me that Terry had contacted them and tried to convince them not to be interviewed by me. And then there was David. During his interview, he told a story that didn't make the final edit because of audio issues. He said that back in 2007... That's when he was drugged into this mess by Hobbs. One day he received a couple calls and voicemails from Terry frantically telling him that they needed to talk. David had responded that he would meet up with Terry when he got off work, but that wasn't fast enough. Terry showed up at his work and told him that some investigators had visited him and asked him about the night the three boys were killed. According to David, Terry tried to convince David to tell the investigators that he had been with Terry the entire evening. While David wasn't certain of all the times, he was certain that quite a bit of time had passed when Terry was not with him. David told me that Terry kept insisting that he was misremembering and that he should just tell the investigators that he was with him so they would leave the two of them alone. When David said that he was just going to tell them the truth, Terry then insisted that he not talk to the investigators at all. Hobbs told him that, and I'll quote David here, they're trying to pin those murders on us. Of all the red flags out there, this one is a pretty big one. Now, it's not uncommon at all for innocent people to not have alibis. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you've heard me say that many times. It never bothers me when someone says that they don't remember exactly what they were doing at a particular place and time. But if what David is saying is true, and I have no reason to believe that it's not, this is a very different type of circumstance. Terry didn't say that he didn't remember where he was. Instead, he fabricated a false alibi in David and then rushed over to him to try to convince David to corroborate his story. Now, you might say, well, maybe Hobbes is just misremembering the events, but I don't believe that. If he thought what he was saying is true, then why was it so important for him to run straight to David to tell him what to say? If it was true... That Terry would just assume that David would remember the night the same way that he did. Terry Hobbs knew that he was lying to the investigators when he fabricated his alibi. And that, again, as Jim would say, is a major red flag. There was a lot more to my conversation with Jim Clementi about Terry than what made the final cut of the series. So, I invited Jim back one last time to share the -the behind-the-scenes details of his assessment. All right, Jim, thanks for joining me again. I was just discussing in my recap of part four, kind of when we started looking at Terry Hobbs' deposition, and we kind of had, you had really, the revelation about him having the police meet at Catfish Island instead of their home. Can you talk a little bit about that moment? There was more to it than what we saw on the show.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. lot more to it. But uh, the first thing I will say is that it was something that came out of his attitude when he first said, I don't care who called them. In other words, he was asked who made the call to the police department. And he said, I don't care who called them. It was extra. He didn't have to say that. And so it perked my ears up. And the next thing he said was, And we waited there, and the cop came there, and we made the report. And then we went home. And it stood out to me because if you're a father, and you have the mother there with you, and you have a child who's missing, and you don't know what happened to that child, where that child is, or whether that child has now returned home, why would you spend 30 seconds, much less 30 minutes, waiting for a police officer to arrive, Making a detailed report before you went home. And it really stands out to me as an anomaly. And when I explain that to you, I have to tell your listeners, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, you not only filled with rage, but also with emotion, and your eyes started tearing up. And you literally wanted to get up and walk away. And I said, No, sit back down. Right. Tell me what's going on. Because I knew that what was go- the machinations that were going on in your brain were that you were putting things together and that you had sat down with this man and he told you whatever he told you. He refused to do an official interview, but you realized that you sit- sat down with a man who did this and that really upset you. And this doesn't make the man guilty, but it certainly raises questions. And what it does is it raises an obligation in us to drill down deeper and find out what the hell this guy was up to, because he could have done it. He could have done some of these things because he was having an affair back at the house and didn't want anybody to know that, right? He could have done it because he was, he's doing something else that he didn't want police to see. So we can't just jump to the conclusion of guilt in these murders just because we see something that he does that indicates that he might be lying or hiding something. You get that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I was enraged and emotional all over again watching that part of the show uh, a couple weeks ago when it, when when the show aired. Kind of reliving that, and, and the one I'm glad you pointed out because one thing that was cut out of the of the series was that when you were you saying what you just mentioned, how what what perked your ears up was him saying, "I don't care about who called nine one one or who called the police." And actually, I've in the last few days I've done more kind of research into that because it's been bugging me. There's more and more to it. You know, people say, "Well, well, who did call? Was it him or Pam?" He always says he doesn't know. So I went back through and looked at the dispatch logs, and the dispatch logs say Terry Hobbs, Catfish Island Restaurant. So it, it absolutely was him that called, and then it right. was Pam that did the report. But there's something even more interesting that I hadn't thought of before until just this last couple of days when I was going back. Wait, to this-
0: wait, wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. But if I don't say this, I'll forget it. I'm sorry. But the fact that he said I don't know—that is another layer of deception, right? Because he knew that if he call, if he admitted to calling from the restaurant, then the question might come, "Why didn't you call?" from your home before. Right. And he wanted to avoid that. Right. And he didn't want to admit that he's the one that made the call from there because his wife may have said, let's go home and call. So he initiated the call from there because he, it just reinforces, he did not want the police at his house.
1: Right. My question
0: is why? I'm sorry for interrupting you, but go ahead. No,
1: that's fine. That's fine. And, you know, and, and Pam's recollection of that was that Terry pulled up and immediately walked over to the phone. And she was like, what's going on? And then, you know, she comes in. And then he after he makes the call, he comes to the car and she's like, where's Stevie? And he's like, oh, he hasn't come home yet. So, you know, she also remembered it that way. Now, there's some question about whether or not they had a working phone at their house. But the bottom line is, even if they didn't have a working phone at their house, he still told them, he told them on the phone to meet him at Catfish Island. But what I was, yeah. what I was about to say that, that adds more complexity to this that just hadn't occurred to me for these last few days is when I was reviewing my interview, which is going to air, um, next week, my long form interview that I did with David Jacoby. And David is talking to me about, uh, uh, about the search efforts when they were down right around dark time around in the Robin Hood woods in the pipe. And he had told me that when he came up from the pipe, or he saw the muddy footprints. When he got back to the road, he was looking for Terry because they wanted go. He wanted to go get flashlights, and Terry was talking to a police officer. There was a police officer right there, where they were at. There was already a cop there, searching for the boys. He he had talked to Mark Byers, who is the one who would initiate the police report. So my point is, before Terry went, he dropped David off and went and picked up Pam at work. He knew the police had already been contacted and were already searching for the boys and then still, for some reason, calls the police and makes a report from there.
0: Wow. Wow. So he had already talked to a police officer, presumably while he was searching for his son, and told the police officer that he was searching for his son.
1: Yeah, well, and to be clear... I don't know for for certain David wasn't sure if he physically talked to the police officer but he definitely had talked to Mark Byers who's the one that had already made the report and the cop was literally parked right there cuz David Jacoby stopped and talked to the cop that was parked right there. Okay. So so he definitely he at least at the very least if he hadn't spoken had to the them opportunity. and he had very and he and he absolutely knew that the police were already aware of the situation and were helping
0: Yeah, Bob, there's a lot of questions. And like I said, these are questions that he should be made to answer in a very formal, official way with a polygraph machine attached to him. I just, I can't imagine why. Well, I can't imagine why, because they believe to this day that they got the right people and they're just making themselves blind to all this evidence that tells us that that's not the case.
1: Bottom line is that this case is never going to be solved by new witnesses, new profiles, or new experts. If there's one thing that this journey has taught me, is that there's no one person that's going to solve this case. It's been talked about and picked apart for too many years by too many people. We've reached a point that if a new witness came forward today and said that they actually witnessed the murders, half of the world would believe them the other half would be certain that person is lying. People are so locked into their own theories at this point, and many simply refuse to believe anything to the contrary. There is one thing and one thing only that is going to solve this case once and for all. Science. We now have access to technology that has the best chance in the 27-year history of this case of proving who stole the lives away from Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. Susanna Ryan is convinced that if she is given access to the evidence, she can pull the killer's DNA from several of the items found on the crime scene using MVAC technology. All she needs is access. Myself and several others spent months trying to get District Attorney Scott Ellington to release the evidence for testing, and he refused to so much as return a phone call. Now is the time that we all need to stand up for Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. We need to stand in the gap for Pam Hicks and Ryan Clark. It's time for the Truth and Justice Army to be heard loud and proud. We will not stand by and do nothing. We will not allow Scott Ellington to hide from the truth. I'm asking all of you, every single one of you, to take a few minutes and let Ellington know that we are not going away until he allows this evidence to be tested. Please go to any of my social media pages, look up Truth and Justice on Facebook, and you can find me at BobRuffTruth on Twitter and Instagram. On all of those pages, I have pinned to the top a form listing the ways to contact Mr. Ellington. Be respectful, but be persistent. Request. Insist that he test the evidence to end this nightmare once and for all. In his own words, anything short of putting every effort possible into solving this case will be a dereliction of his duties. Let's all come together in these strange times and fight for three little boys who can no longer fight for themselves. Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. The Forgotten, West Memphis Three. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is attributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedIntandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team Pamela Westby, Kathy McElaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. We also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, add free versions of all of our episodes... The Justice Army t shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co host one of our Friday follow up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M U R R B G A M I N G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.